It's been said that you really get to know someone not when things are going good, but when things are going bad. You know, when the the heat starts to rise, uh, the impurities rise to the surface. And this coronavirus epidemic that we're all living through has really made people react in different ways. You know, there's something else that has happened to the people of this world and the people of the United States in this regard to this coronavirus. And it's that we have become infected with fear. We have the fear of getting sick. We have the fear of spreading the disease to our loved ones, the fear of suffering, the fear of death. And if you're brave enough to venture out into the community and you go to a grocery store and you look at someone else, they have a tendency to look at you as if to say, you better not get me sick. And we look at them the same way. You know, perhaps you saw the picture of the uh, guy who had the pool noodles uh, all attached to his hat, extending in every direction to keep social distancing from other people. You know, I thought that was sort of creative. One person told me that they thought maybe we need to get in the habit of doing what the Japanese do and bow to each other. I don't know if that's going to work here in America. I mean, we don't bow to the Queen of England. I'm not sure if we're going to bow to one another you know, and, and I thought, well, maybe we could just sort of point at one another, you know, see someone from a distance and point at them. But I'm sure someone will get upset because it looks like we're making the shape of a gun. But that's not too much of a worry out here in West Texas. I mean, we've already got guns up, right, Red Raiders? Well, you know, maybe this whole situation has brought up some things that we need to address. And I think this coronavirus epidemic has brought up a lot of fears in our hearts. We've become afraid. We've become fearful. Well, I want you to know there's a difference between being cautious and being fearful. You can take all the precautions that you feel you need to take. You can wear a mask and keep social distance from other people and do anything else that you feel like you need to do. And that's wise, but it doesn't have to make you afraid. You see, fear is a spiritual enemy that once it grabs hold of your heart, it can choke out all of the life and all of the joy that God intends for you to experience. Fear is not the mark of a spirit-filled Christian. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, the Bible says, but of power and love and discipline. Sometimes, Surveys are taken by, of, of people and they're asked, what do you fear the most? And always at the top of the list is public speaking. And a little bit further down the list, you finally get to death. Well, I think this coronavirus epidemic might be moving death a little bit higher up on that list. But you know what? Christians do not need to fear death. Christians don't need to fear death. We shouldn't fear death, at least, because Jesus defeated death. Jesus is risen from the grave. And Jesus knew in his lifetime beforehand that he would be raised from the dead. He believed what nobody else believed, that he would live again. And that's why Jesus faced death head on. And that's why Jesus even did something beyond not fear death, but he set the course of his own death. Jesus determined, he decided when he would die, at whose hands he would die, and how they would kill him. 
Now, you might not have ever thought of it this way, but I believe the Bible indicates that Jesus intentionally provoked his enemies to kill him. Now, to be sure, these men were still men of free will. They still had the opportunity to make their own decisions. And if they didn't already have murderous intentions in their heart, they would have never murdered Jesus. But they did have murderous intentions in their heart, and Jesus knew it. Jesus knew the hearts of those who opposed him. He knew that they were murderers, that they followed the will of their father, the devil. And all Jesus did was give them a reason to act out upon the murderous intentions of their hearts. And so near the end of Jesus' ministry, he became a provocateur uh, who, who agitated and irritated and offended not only the very men who held his life in their hands, so they thought, but he also enticed the demonic spiritual entities that held sway over these men. He enticed them to influence these men to kill him. I want you to read with me in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. This is Jesus speaking. He said, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. Today, I want to share with you the reason that Jesus voluntarily laid down his life. And it is this. He wants to have a relationship with you. You might wonder, well, what does Jesus' death way back when have to do with me and my life today? Well, let me explain. You see, all throughout Jesus' ministry, he faced opponents. He faced opposition. And the people that opposed Jesus unknowingly were doing the will of Satan. They were taking their marching orders from Satan. The devil and his demons influenced these men to oppose Jesus at every turn. Why? Because the devil and his demons knew who Jesus was. They did not know, the devil and his demons did not know what Jesus was up to. They did not know that it was Jesus' plan to die on a cross and to rise from the grave, but they did know his identity. You see, when Jesus encountered demons, they called him names. And the names that the demons called him were actually correct because they knew who he was. When Jesus encountered a demon in Mark chapter one, the demon said, you are the Holy One of God. When Jesus encountered a legion of demons in Mark five, they said, you are the son of the most high God. In Luke chapter four, a demon said, you are the son of God. But Jesus told them to be silent. Jesus refused to allow these demons to reveal who he was. It would be God the Father, not demons, that would reveal to humanity who Jesus really was. And so at just the right time in Jesus' ministry, he took his disciples well north of where they had ever been. He took them to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And there is at Caesarea Philippi a stream of water. And if at that time, if you were to follow that stream of water 
upstream to its source, you had come upon a, a, a rocky face of a cliff, a giant cliff. This cliff is 100 feet high and 500 feet wide. There is, in the midst of this cliff, a giant cave, a large, foreboding, dark cave. And if you were to enter that cave, you would see a precipice, a deep drop that, that was actually filled with a huge amount of water. And in that day, the locals would sometimes try to find out how deep that hole went that was filled with water. And they would take something heavy and they would uh, tie, it, tie it to a long rope and they would try to drop it to the end, but they always ran out of rope. It was said that there was not rope, not enough rope to find out how deep that pit really was. And so it, it was at that place in Jesus' day where the pagans that lived in that area, they believed that the gods that they worshiped lived in the underworld at wintertime and they would exit, the gods would exit that cave at springtime and, and other caves nearby and they would come to the earth and, and help populate the earth at springtime and they were fertility gods and all types of other things. And the the name that the locals had given to these caves, and especially this large one, was this. These were the gates of hell. And so it was at this place where Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it was at Peter's declaration, when Peter made that statement, Jesus made his own declaration. Jesus stood at what was believed to be the gates of hell, and he said back to Peter in full earshot of any demons on the earth, any demonic activity or spiritual beings under the earth, Jesus said to Peter, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This was a declaration of war by Jesus against satanic forces. Now nearby these gates of hell, there is a large mountain called Mount Hermon. And in Old Testament times, Mount Hermon was the place where Canaanites would sometimes go to worship their false god called Baal. So now that Jesus heard this statement from Peter and responded with his declaration of war, he went up on Mount Hermon afterwards. And he took with him three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And once they reached the summit of Mount Hermon, Jesus was transfigured before them. His face and his body and his hair and his clothes began to shine as bright as the sun. You see, all of the glory of the eternal son of God was being manifested before them today. And not only that, but then God the Father himself came in a cloud and out of the cloud, James and John and Peter heard these words. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Do you see what was going on here? You have Jesus standing at the gates of hell, making a declaration that the forces of hell are no match for him and his church. 
And then Jesus ascends the very mountain that is associated with the worship of the gods of the nations. And God the Father himself declares that Jesus is the unique, the one and only, eternal Son of the Most High God. These are spiritual declarations of war that God and Jesus made against the forces of hell. And now it's time for Jesus to go into battle. And the battle that he's going to face will be in Jerusalem. And so immediately after these events, Jesus begins to make his way south toward Jerusalem. And beginning at the moment that Jesus entered Jerusalem, he intentionally, repeatedly provoked his opponents, his enemies, to the point that their murderous hearts turned on him to kill him. Now, why would Jesus do this? Because Jesus knew something that they didn't. Jesus believed something that they did not believe, that he would rise from the dead. And so on that Sunday, we celebrate it now as Palm Sunday, on that Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a colt, which fulfilled prophecy that the king of Israel would come into Jerusalem riding on a colt. And Jesus did that very thing. And his disciples were waving palm branches and praising God and shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And you know, you know this upset the religious leaders. Because in the very next verse, we read, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus said, I tell you, if these become silent, the very stones will cry out. And that statement probably upset them even more. You know, Jesus is not holding back his feelings now. He's not biting his tongue. He is telling the religious authorities exactly how things are. And if he couldn't get their attention on Sunday, well, maybe he could on Monday. Because on Monday, Jesus returned to Jerusalem. He returned to the temple area and he cleaned it out. Jesus drove out the people that were buying and selling in the temple. I mean, who said that people could conduct business in the, in the holy temple? Who gave that permission? Because God certainly didn't say it. Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers. I mean, who said that financial tables were somehow allowed in the holy temple of God? God was very specific about the furnishings that were allowed in his temple and a cashier's desk was not on the list. Jesus took the chairs of those that were selling doves and pigeons and he tossed them aside. I mean, who gave these bird handlers permission to sit in high back chairs in the holy temple? I mean, who do they think they really are? And so Jesus, he took people and he stopped them from carrying merchandise through the temple. I mean, who said that the temple was simply a place for a thoroughfare, for commerce? I mean, it's a place where people are trying to pray. People are trying to worship God. Show some respect. You know, show some respect, but, but to make a holy place simply a common place. There's a place for common activities like business and, and selling and buying. There's a place for that, but it's not in the holy 
temple of God. And if all of that commotion that Jesus caused didn't get the attention of the religious leaders, then maybe this would. Jesus said to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. I think that got their attention. I think it, it got their attention because it was at that point that we read these words in Mark chapter 11, verse 18. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. Why? Why would Jesus provoke the religious leaders to destroy him? It's because he believed something that they didn't that he would rise from the dead. And then Tuesday came, and Tuesday was a busy day. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders confronted Jesus. They said, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus replied, I'm going to ask you a question. You tell me. The baptism of John, the Baptist. By whose authority was that done? Was that from heaven or from earth? Was it from God or from men? And they got together and couldn't decide. And they said, We're, we don't know. And he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Instead, Jesus told them three parables. And at the end of each of these three parables, Jesus made some very provocative statements to these religious leaders. He said to them at the end of the first parable, tax collectors and prostitutes, will get into the kingdom of heaven before you. At the end of the second parable, he said, the kingdom of God will be taken, from way, taken away from you and it will be given to a nation that will produce the fruit of it. At the end of the third parable, Jesus said, then the king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, Jesus makes one provocative statement after another, and then he's he told these educated rabbis, you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. Well, after that, Jesus really turned up the heat because it was at that point that Jesus turned his attention from the religious leaders to the people. And this is what he told the people in full view of the religious leaders. He said this, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. And then Jesus turned to the religious leaders and in full view of all of the people, he pronounced a series of judgments against these religious leaders. Jesus said, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, 
hypocrites because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people for you do not enter yourselves nor do you allow those who are entering to go in woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte and when he becomes one you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated, you fools and blind men. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? I mean, if everything else Jesus had done wasn't enough for the religious leaders to have him killed, that speech probably would have done it. But why? Why would Jesus provoke the religious leaders to kill him? Because Jesus believed something that they didn't, that he would rise from the dead. On Friday, you know, they arrested Jesus. He stood before Annas, the former high priest, and listen to what Jesus said to Annas. Annas is his judge in this instance, if you can imagine that. And Jesus tells Annas, go find witnesses to testify against me. Now, I don't know if you've ever stood before a judge, but I, I doubt that you've ever told the judge to go find witnesses to testify against you. But Jesus told Annas to do that. And then Jesus was taken before Caiaphas, the acting high priest. And he was taken before the court of the Sanhedrin. And Caiaphas asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Jesus replied, I am. And you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus claimed to be the son of man. Jesus claimed to ride the clouds of heaven. Both of these are things in the Old Testament that are ascribed only to God. And yet Jesus says this of himself. Jesus was claiming to be God. I mean, if you want to be found innocent of blasphemy, then don't claim to be God. But Jesus did claim to be God. Why? Because he is God. And there's a second reason, because Jesus had made up his mind to be found guilty of these charges. A guilty charge would have him turned over to the Roman authorities who had the power and the authority to kill him, 
to crucify him. Why would Jesus provoke the religious leaders to find him guilty? Because Jesus believed something that they didn't, that he would rise from the grave. After standing trial before the religious, excuse me, before the Roman authorities, Jesus was crucified. They nailed his hands and his feet to a cross and he remained on public display for six hours that Friday. And on the cross, Jesus said these words, it is finished. To telestize the Greek word, it means paid in full. Jesus took all of our sins and paid them in full right there on the cross. And the Bible says that Jesus then bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And that's unusual because someone who's crucified will be fighting for air to breathe. They'll be fighting for his life until his heart gives out and then his head will collapse. He'll die first and then his head will collapse. But Jesus bowed his head first and voluntarily gave up his spirit. Even to the very end, Jesus was in control of the circumstances surrounding his death. Jesus is always in control. Jesus was a man and is a man who makes things happen. Jesus made his death happen. But you know, that's not just the end of the story right there. Because Jesus made something else very important happen as well. Jesus raised himself from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the reason that we are worshiping Jesus today. He is. The resurrection of Jesus is the reason that we worship Jesus today. It is the central tenet to our faith. You see, we don't worship a dead man. We worship a God who became man, a man who humbled himself like no other man, a man who died on a cross, a man who was raised from the dead, a man who ascended to heaven, a man who sits at the right hand of God the Father, a man who came to this world to save it, a man who will return to this world to judge it. We worship Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of kings and in him we live and we move and we have our being this jesus makes things happen jesus has never failed and he never will fail you the bible says that if you confess with your mouth jesus is lord and believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you will be saved jesus will not fail you he will make it happen. Do you need God today to forgive you of all of your sins? Jesus has already made it happen on the cross. All you must do is believe. Do you need to follow Jesus today? If you need to follow Jesus today, he can make God's forgiveness. He can make eternal life. He can make the gift of his spirit all happen for you today. All you have to do is believe. If today you're ready to give your heart and your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, if today you're ready to follow him, 
I would ask you to simply send me an email. Email me at david at broadviewchurch.com and I would love to get in touch with you and get some information in your hands how you can begin your lifelong journey with Jesus. God bless.